Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Hamilton. Before we get started today, I did want to mention, of course, that today, November 11th, is Veterans Day in the United States and Remembrance Day in Canada. On behalf of everyone at the Scuderia F1 podcast team, a big shout out and much love to all of those people in the armed forces on both sides of the Canada-US border that give so much to protect our security and our way of life. Big shout out and much love to everybody in the armed forces, both serving presently and those that have served to defend and guard the integrity of our countries in the past. Thanks once again. Now on with the show. Locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song and my songs gon' break through like a running back. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my frenemy, my resident op, Mr. Daly. But that's a good thing because we have the one, the only Mr. Sam Cooper of Planet F1, of course. Famous UK Formula One journalist joining us today. Mr. Sam Cooper, my friend, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, you and I were commiserating a couple of minutes ago about the fact that the weather in London is cold and gray. And here in Vancouver, it's November, so it's it's cold and gray. So we're bonding over that a little bit. But aside from aside from that, how's everything else in the UK at the moment? Yeah, I think it's all good. Yeah, like I said, we're all sort of bracing for winter. We have very long winters of a lot of drizzle and a lot of rain. But yeah, I think we're all we're all good so far. You know, it's it's funny and we're going to get to this a little bit later. We're not the only ones that are um, experiencing a little bit of cool weather. We're going to Las Vegas next weekend for the first annual Las Vegas Grand Prix. And it looks like track time temperatures or air temperature at the time of the race might be as low as three or four degrees, which is mind-blowing and will be the lowest temperatures we've ever seen for an F1 race. But before we get into the news today, uh, got to do a couple of laundry items. So big shout out to Magnus and crew over at Race Weekend. Uh, they have something very, very special dropping next week. And I am sworn to secrecy, but you'll definitely hear a little bit more about it next week. Uh, of course, shout out to Tease and the entire gang at Racing Exclusives. It's now that time of year where people are probably shopping for their loved ones. And if you're looking for something very cool from an F1 memorabilia perspective, there's nowhere better to start than Racing Exclusives. A reminder that next weekend we are holding the first annual, maybe this becomes a regular thing, but we're holding a fundraiser for the Canadian Mental Health Association at my place. We're going to be watching the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Food and drink will be provided. And if you're interested in attending, slide into your DMs and I'll get you all of the details. And then finally, one last reminder, Vedika Selecki, we interviewed her a couple of days ago, of course, of PR fame and also an F1 enthusiast. That episode is up. And an add-on to that is that the clothing line that we spoke to during that podcast is also now available. So if you track down Vedic on social media, or if you track down me, you'll definitely be able to link into that and check it out. There's some very, very cool pieces. And then as we always do before we jump into the show, a quick recap of our F1 fantasy standings. And of course, the winner this year is going to take home, courtesy of Tease and the entire gang at Racing Exclusive, will be taking home a one-half scale 
Max Verstappen signed helmet with a certificate of authenticity and currently leading the championship is Michael Cron G16, followed by Axa Simons, Bengals Bugs, USAP 2, McLaro Lando, Relampago, Marquinhos, Vince Dest 2, Joel's 1, Zanata Team 3, and Russell My. Feather. Now, of course, there's still two Grand Prix left, and this bad boy is wide open, so do not give up on your fantasy team yet. And then, of course, I don't even know if we need to do this from a World Drivers' Championship perspective. Max is leading the championship. He's won the title. It's all wrapped up. 524 points, followed by his teammate Sergio Perez on 258. Lewis on 226. Fernando Alonso took a leap after his podium finished last week at 198. Lando on 195. Carlos Sainz on 192. Charles Leclerc on 170. George Russell on 156. And Oscar Piastri on 80. Now we'll round out the top 10, of course, Lance Stroll. The Canadian driver on 87, he managed to crack the top five last weekend for a first time in a while. Red Bull is just crushing this championship. 782 points, followed by Mercedes on 382 and Ferrari on 362. Okay, now that all of that is done and out of the way, Sam, thank you for your patience, but let's jump right into it. Now, the first story this weekend, and typically you publish a ton of really great stuff and you've got some great articles that I am dying to dig into, but I saw an article a couple of days ago and I kind of wanted to get your perspective on this one. So Max Verstappen has been quoted, and we're going to jump right into Vegas now. He has been quoted as saying, and I quote, first of all, we are there being Las Vegas more for the show than the race itself. Looking at the layout of the circuit, I'm not actually that much into it. I'm more, I'll go there, do my thing, and be gone. I'll deal with that once I arrive at the track. I mean, there's still a lot to do. I still need to go on the simulator. I still don't even know the track, to be honest. The last time I tried it on the F1 game, I think I hit more walls than I was going straight. So let's hope that's not the case when I start driving there. It's going to be very different to Brazil, very low temperatures, and of course at night. We have no experience there. We don't know the track grip. It's all new. So maybe it will give a few surprises. My friend... I think the the feedback, the sentiment from the drivers is pretty mixed that I think a lot of people are excited to go there because of the exposure and the spectacle. What is the general kind of perspective in the UK? And of course, the UK, for so many reasons, is kind of the, the bedrock of Formula One and the fans there have been following the sport. Is there excitement? Is there trepidation? Do people think that this is a gimmick? What is the general perspective on on the Las Vegas Grand Prix from a UK angle? That's really interesting, actually. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting what Max said. Like, I imagine, like, if listeners imagine like a line of like drivers excited for the race, like you've got Daniel Ricciardo on one end, who absolutely loves it, loves the F1 hype, loves all that stuff, and then I'd say you have Max on the complete opposite end. Like for him, a perfect race weekend would be arrive Friday morning practices the team, leave Sunday evening. So, like, they're so different, their style. So it's interesting <laughs> what Max said. In terms of the UK, that's a tricky one. I really think, like, we've got, like, sort of two camps, really. So you've got – it's either you're all in and you're or you're very sceptical. So, like, people who love it, like, I think they're really excited for it. They want, like, all that show, what a pageantry, like, of what Vegas is known for. And then I think you've got a few others who are sort of just a bit cautious about it kind of thing. Like – I think from, I, I, we spoke about this before actually, but those Miami introductions, those driver introductions, I think a lot of the European slash UK audience were looking at like, oh God, what's going <laughs> on kind of thing. Like, so I think if that's happening in Miami, like what are they going to do in Vegas? So like, we're always sort of like, we're excited for it, but we're sort of like, okay, let's see what's going on. Let's, let's like find a good line between the show, like Max says, and the racing, which ultimately is why we're watching. It's what we're here for. So yeah, I think... There's a cautious optimism, I'd say, a week out. 
They've certainly, and I say they, I'm talking about the city, the county, and, and of course, lot, Formula One, because Formula One is actually the race organizer in this case. They spend a ton of money. They built a ton of physical infrastructure, the grandstand, a whole bunch of hospitality stuff, a lot of the entertainment stuff that's going to operate year round. And as a reminder, circuit length, 6.2 kilometers, race length, 310 kilometers, 50 laps, blah, 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 blah. It's going to be interesting. They have resurfaced it. But I think one of the things that's going to be most interesting is the fact that, like I said off the top, it's... It's going to be cold. It'll be dry, but it is going to be cold. And people are speculating that it could be as low as three or four degrees Celsius. Don't ask me to translate that into American, but three or four degrees Celsius isn't that far from the freezing point. Are, are people starting to get a little bit nervous about that? Like for certainly, I'm, I'm sure Pirelli is thinking, oh my gosh, how are we, we going to do this? And what does this look like? And from a driver perspective, they're probably in the sim right now trying to replicate this experience because presumably it's going to be very, very slippery out there for them. I, I've seen some comments recently that this may have been something of an oversight and maybe that wasn't the case, but at least that story's kind of leaking out. Was this really an oversight on behalf of the F1 community? And now people are coming to this realization that, oh my God, it's going to be cold and at night in, in the desert. Or was this something that people generally understood the entire time? No, I think you're right to say that. I think the reason that's come out is um, Ross Braun, I'm sure everyone never knows, but had a big history of Ferrari, his own team, obviously. And then he was involved in F1, like the management side of it, sort of when they were planning for Vegas. And he said this week, like the, the temperature, the cold temperature was an oversight. They just didn't think about it. And I think like from, because obviously Ross Braun's from the UK as well. I think our perception of Vegas is always really hot. It's the desert. It's like ridiculously warm all the time. But obviously, like you said, like it's in the desert. So it's going to be cold at night. And I think it is a huge problem. Like if we look at the layout of the track, like you'd think long strakes would be good for warming up the tyres, but it's actually the opposite. Like you sort of want a lot of corners and a lot of turns so you can really use a lot of the wheel. You can get it nice and hot as you brake. And I think for a lot of teams, that is going to be an issue. I think in particular, I'm looking at Mercedes because we saw in Sao Paulo, like they had such a bad time warming up their tyres and like it just wasn't getting to the right place. And as it did, it, it sort of like got but got out of the window very quickly. And I think Vegas is only going to be worse than like it's, it's on track to be the coldest F1 race we've ever had kind of thing. We're used to racing in really hot countries where it's, it's too hot. And like now we're at the opposite end of the scale. So I think... I wouldn't be surprised if you see a lot of teams going out for one or two warm-up laps before qualifying just to get the tyres ready. And I think that's something like, like I said, Mercedes are going to be particularly bad for that. And I, I don't think any team's going to get away with not being slightly affected by it. And I think if I had to put one section where I think it's going to be the hardest, I don't know if people have seen it, but F1 this week posted a picture of their new their new pit lane, their new grandstand. It looked great. But like the other thing that I noticed was the exit of the pit lane comes into turn one and it's a completely blind bend and you go in pretty much 180 degrees on yourself and if you're coming out with dead cold tires like you're gonna <laughs> oh, be skidding across straight oh, someone wow. else. so like that's gonna be a massive concern of area i know like I, I can't believe that's some of the like they agreed to it's crazy but yeah so I, i'm just imagining a situation where you've got two drivers trying to overtake on the main straight and then suddenly a third one pulls out of the pit lane like no tires at all like as if they're on ice. So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of situations where it's going to look a little bit hairy for, for the drivers. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm not in that seat. Sam, you make such a great point about the, the nature of this track. And I have the track layout in front of me that it's not a particularly 
complex track, meaning that for a lot of these drivers, they're basically on the th on the throttle going in a straight line or basically going in a softer curve that if this was more technical and maybe even a slower circuit, at least they're constantly grinding those tires one, one angle or another and they're getting that heat in there. You're right. Like if you're going in a straight line and it's four degrees out at night, you're constantly cooling those tires, not heating those tires up, which means that you have less grip when you get to a corner. And for everyone listening in the US, which by the way is most of our audience, uh, three to four degrees Celsius translates into 37 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit, which isn't that much above freezing. So it's going to be crazy. The other thing that I thought too is obviously we're not going to be there. Um, there's been a lot of stories and some people have tweeted recently that pricing and demand for tickets have collapsed. And I think it's going to be a sellout and I think they're going to do really well. But obviously, I think when you are doing this for the first time and you're the race organizer and you're all the hospitality providers like the restaurants and the hotels and things like that in Las Vegas, you're going to shoot high. You're going to shoot for the moon. You're going to shoot your shot and charge everything that you can. And if the demand's not there, you're going to kind of reel it in. So I'm sure it's still going to be a smashing success. But the other thought that I had was, I've been to a lot of Grand Prix, and fortunately, every F1 Grand Prix I've been to has been baking hot. Now, I've been to MotoGP in the pouring rain, and that is a that is a different type of experience. This is going to be unique because it's going to be dry, but imagine sitting in the grandstands bundled up. Like, a hoodie's probably not going to be enough to keep you warm for the two hours of this of this Grand Prix. My friend, from putting aside kind of the race experience, what do you think this is going to be from a commercial perspective? Now, we've talked to a ton of people off the air about the commercial side, and it sounds like a ton of brands have activated and there's a ton of interest. Do you think that this is going to be a smashing commercial success? Because I think Liberty cares more here about the commercial dimension than they do the, the racing spectacle. Oh, yeah. And I, I can sort of give you like some evidence of that is the amount of PR emails I've had like the past two weeks is insane like it's more than the rest of the year combined like I'm getting emails about events that are going on everywhere like the, the most random ones you can think of like everyone's getting involved in this and like you said like it is a huge commercial opportunity and it sort of needs to be because like you said they spent so much money on this building and the race itself is quite unique like unless you, in case your audience doesn't know like most races have their own promoter and they sort of lend the track to f1 and like they pay a fee for that whereas this one like f1 for whatever reason decided to do it themselves like they there is no promoter f1 is the promoter so like they're the ones footing the bill so they definitely need it to be a massive commercial boost and i think i think it will be to be honest like we've seen these stories of like five million dollar hotel rooms like that's obviously the very high example but there's loads of hospitality packages and i bet loads of them are sold out like we saw the amount of celebrities that are on a grid usually like that's only been doubled and tripled for when it's in Vegas. So like, I think it's going to do very well. And like you said, I think it was always sort of like a commercial showpiece rather than a great racetrack. Like, I think there's other, if like, if you want pure racing, there's a lot of other circuits to go to and like, they're more likely to give you a good race. Whereas this is sort of the show. This is the event, like without being harsh to that audience, but like this is sort of the, the drive to survive kind of race. Like, these are the people that have come from there that want that big drama, that want that lot of entertainment. And I think that's sort of where it's going to come from. And I also want to mention, I feel like me and you must have had the exact opposite experience of Grand Prix because you said you've been to lots of hot ones. And I was just thinking about, I've been to Belgium and the Netherlands this year where it rained the whole time. <laughs> and like I said, I saw a lot of fans absolutely drenched and it looked miserable. And I could say like, 
if that happens in Vegas and it's four degrees, like, I'm very sorry for those fans. I was at Silverstone in 2018 and it was in the middle of a heat wave and it must have been like pushing 40 degrees. And the lineup, the lineup for beer at 8 a.m. was just palpable. And I, that wasn't me. I was just observing, but it was crazy. Dude, I, I want to kind of ask you a question about something you just kind of mentioned here that typically Liberty, they, they're kind of the commercial body that kind of looks after the commercial side of F1 and they kind of generate revenue in a couple of different kind of verticals. They generate it from streaming and TV deals and they generate it from kind of broadly speaking sponsorships, but they also basically go out and license the races that, hey, hey, Mr. Smith, you've got a racetrack in your country, you know what, cut us a check for $50 million and you can host an F1 race for the next five years. What we're seeing here is a little bit different, that F1's effectively cut out the middleman, that they are hosting this themselves. Is this is this potentially a one-off? Or could you imagine a world where Liberty's like, look, we can do this ourselves. We don't need the middleman. We're just going to go straight to the track owner and, and strike a deal ourselves. And we get to keep all that profit. Do you see that this is maybe a one-off? Or could Liberty potentially look to do more of this by cutting out that race sanctioning body? Yeah, I'd sort of see this as a one-off, to be honest. Like, I think most tracks are owned by the promoters. So like to do it, like Liberty would have to pay an enormous amount to buy every track. And then that's like cost on cost on cost, isn't it? Like a, a Formula One track doesn't just exist for a weekend. Like you've got to make, take care of it the whole year round. And I, I'm, I'd be interested to see why they've chosen to do it this way. I mean, there's, there's probably a couple of reasons behind it. Like, first of all, this is an entirely new race. Like it's not like we had this circuit already. Like to use Silverstone as an example, it's not like Silverstone existed and Formula One decided let's have a race there. Like, no one, well, they did think, but no one had done it before. No one had a race at Las Vegas. Like, that's sort of the reason why F1 was in this unique position to do so. And I think they must have thought, from a financial perspective, like, we're going to make more money if we put in the money and then we'll get all of it come out, kind of thing. So, like you said, they've cut out the middleman, like, they're getting all the profit, but of course they're getting all the negative. Like they, they've had to build a pit building, which isn't, isn't, isn't cheap kind of thing, especially in Las Vegas, kind of like land prices you're looking at there. Like there's probably, uh, yeah, I, I must imagine this has got to be a one-off just because Liberty is a very rich company, but I don't think they've got the money or really the desire to like go out and buy the historic tracks. And I think that's even before you get to the fact that a lot of these owners aren't going to want to sell like their prized asset. Like, Silverstone, for example, is never going to be sold because it's such a prized thing for the people that own it. So, like, yeah, I think this must be a one-off. And maybe they're using it as like a testing ground, see how it goes. Maybe if they make their money back, then they'll start doing another one. But I think for now, at least, their idea is just to keep it Las Vegas. Like, let's make this race the best we can, and let's make as much money as we can from it. From a personal perspective, are are you excited? Where is your excitement level for for Vegas? Is it is it a five out of ten, a seven out of ten, an eight out of ten, or are you just like, eh, I, I can take it or leave it? Oh, it's. I think I put myself in that cautiously optimistic thing. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to the race, like just to see like how it is because it's a new chat. Obviously, like we're we're excited to see those. It's obviously got some like iconic landmarks by it. It's probably gonna be like the, one of those pitch rest races on the on the calendar and like. Yeah, I think I've that Miami stuff made me a bit bit cringe, but for me, like I don't, I obviously I'm not there. I don't have to watch it. Like, I can just tune at the start of the race, and that'd be fine. So like, I'm excited for it. Like, obviously we've had such a big build up. Like, I feel like even before we've got to like this race being the next race, like we've been talking about it all year. We've sort of been getting ready for it. So I'm just sort of excited to see how it happens. Like, are, is this uh, track going to be a good track? Like, 
is it going to be favourable to other teams or not? Like kind of thing. What happens there? So, yeah, I think Corsica, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say like a 7 out of 10 maybe. So, yeah, I'm not like completely down on it, but I'm sort of like, Holding my breath, waiting to see what's going to happen. I, I would say this too, that I let out something of a screech when I saw the original time because here on the Pacific coast of North America, we're talking Vegas, oh, it's less so Vegas, but Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. Most of the Grand Prix during the calendar year start at 6 a.m. our time on a Sunday. So when I realized this race was starting at 6 a.m. in the UK, I let out an audible cheer. I'm like, finally, finally the Brits <laughs> get a taste of what we get on the West coast of North America. So for us, I think it's going to be super unusual because you, you still get a Sunday Grand Prix. It's earlier than normal, but for us, it's 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. So I'm very excited about that, that, you know what, we can build something around it. And like I said, off the top of the show, we're holding a fundraiser at my place. It was in part, it was a giant con job to convince my wife to buy a 77 inch TV, which was very successful. And it's currently mounted on the wall. Shout out Samsung. But, uh, but yeah, I think I'm excited for that. My friend, I want to pivot to the next topic. And this is something that you wrote about recently on planetf1.com. And it's a, it's a subject that I'm, I'm very, very passionate about and I have some very strong feelings and I think I've started to crystallize my understanding of where I think this should go but you wrote an article where Christian Horner says that sprints are long with a medal at the end and you wrote here Horner is not one who is dead against them being sprint races but said they need more meaning for them to be successful it's got to mean something he told Sky Sports F1 after Verstappen's victory at Brazil you can tell at the end of that race we're not quite sure whether we congratulate each other or not I think it's got to have more meaning to it. And he continues, it's got to be more of an event in itself rather than an extended long race with a medal at the end. I think it needs a think over the winter because I think there's real merit to doing something, but I don't think we've got it quite right at the moment. Is is Christian Horner, is his belief and his impression of the sprint race generally in alignment with the rest of the paddock? Are other team principles in teams generally pretty comfortable with where they've got the format now? Or is there just this general understanding that, hey, we think it's cool to have something, but the current concept isn't working? Yeah, I think if we look at the paddock, I think there's definitely a split. So I think all the team principals are largely agree, agree with Horner. Like, I think most of them recognize that it's a good thing. I think with team principals, they tend to be a bit more switched on commercially. So maybe they've seen that they're going to get more fans in. Although saying that, Austin didn't have as many fans as people were expecting. But overall, they're going to sort of predict that more racing equals more fans coming in. Whereas the drivers, I think they're purely focused on their weekend. Like, if we go back to that, that scale, I said, like, Ricardo, one end of Verstappen, the other one. Like, Verstappen, again, is on the end of hating the sprint most. Like, I, I don't know who's on the other end, but, like, Verstappen is definitely the furthest away, despite winning about 90% of them. So, like, it's an interesting one. Like, I think I agree with Horner. Like, we sort of, have this situation where like the races the sprint race is sort of just getting exciting and then it's sort of over it just dies out because teams don't have to make pit stops like after the opening laps like, there's very little that's going to change really like teams aren't going to fall away and i think there's been a lot of chat about how do we fix it like do we get rid of them which i don't think f1 want to do or like is there a separate sprint championship kind of thing and i think i wrote an article about this like i think one way to fix this sort of be my suggestion is like maybe we put reserve drivers in there so like can you imagine a situation earlier this season where we had like Mick Schumacher in the Mercedes, Danny Ricciardo in the Red Bull and like Liam Lawson in the Avatar? I just think we always talk about how young drivers just do not get enough chances to drive an F1 car. And like other than like an FP1 and maybe a test at a private track, like 
drivers are being asked to get thrown into the deep end and try and compete, as we've seen with Logan Sargent this year. So maybe a way is to have these things where drivers can compete. Like it's still Red Bull, it's still like Ferrari, it's still all those, but it's their young drivers sort of giving them a chance. And then maybe like, obviously then the, the drivers, the reserve drivers are going to massively care about it. Like is their chance to be an F1, potentially win an F1 championship, I would say then in air quotes, but I think that's just a better way to do it. And like, yes, you'd have to make it like changes to the cost cap. Like you probably have to allow a team to run a third car because I don't think if you tell Max Verstappen that someone else is going to be driving his car, he's going to be too pleased. But so I think if you had a third car, just maybe something like that, maybe to make it a bit more exciting, maybe make it so it means something to the drivers. It means something to the teams because they're getting something out of it. Like the prize money and the points aren't really worth it for them. So maybe if they get the, get a chance to like, blood their young rookies like maybe that's a positive thing that they can do instead so yeah i think something like that maybe would work but yeah i think overall it definitely just needs some changes because i think at the moment it's a bit like eh, like no one's massively excited about it really like even the fans in the pack either uh, the media in the paddock or the team principal in the paddock and the fans outside of it as well I like that quote that you have from Christian Horner about, we don't know whether to celebrate it. Like, we don't know whether to congratulate each other. And we've we've had this conversation both on and off the air that what is the historical relevance of winning a sprint race? Like, winning a Grand Prix is is the highlight potentially of most drivers' careers. And fans remember that for years. But I can't recall, like I would guess Max Verstappen won most of the sprint races this year because I think that's probably just a logical thing to do. But I have no idea who won the sprint races last year or the year before. And that if you go into the historical records of F1, there's no like subcategory of Grand Prix winners and sprint race winners that they just kind of vanish into thin air. I I saw another quote from Christian Horner recently, and this one struck me as something super valid. And I've tried so hard to think about ways to make the sprint race more relevant. And you know what? First year, they were giving points out to, I think, the top three finishers. And then they said, hey, we're going to give points out to more people. And we're going to make more points available to make it more meaningful. And they've kind of switched up the qualifying format. And they've done some things that are good. But Christian Horner made a comment recently that struck me as like, oh my God, that might be the silver bullet. And and his point was, we should just have a second Grand Prix. That if we're ultimately invested in injecting more excitement and content and value to a a Grand Prix weekend, like, like scrap the sprint, just have two Grand Prix, have a qualifying, this is me now, but have a qualifying session on Friday and have a Grand Prix on Saturday and a Grand Prix on Sunday. That that from a historical perspective and a relevancy perspective, that would be incredibly important to every driver and every team. And certainly there's precedence for that. We've seen it in Formula, or we've seen it in Indy where they've had doubleheaders in Detroit and Toronto. And this year they had a doubleheader in in Iowa. Like there's there's something to that. So for me, the thought was like, wow, like this is a great way to deliver the value and the potential viewer engagement that they're looking for because I think we saw in Qatar this year that no one's showing up for these sprint races. People will show up for qualifying in the Grand Prix, but no one just understands the relevance of a sprint race. And maybe sticking a second Grand Prix into the weekend would be interesting. Now, to your point, and I know where you're going to go with this, that that has serious cost cap ramifications, right? That if you're going to have a second Grand Prix, the teams are going to say, well, 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 let's expand that that cap. But what would you think about the idea of double header weekends? And maybe you could package them up around as majors, like, hey, you know what? We have four weekends a year where we have this double header format. Both races count for full points, et cetera, et cetera. Is that something that you feel the audience would be receptive to or the teams might push back on? I mean, we're halfway there with the sprint race anyways, but do you think that's a concept that people would be open to? Yeah, I think I'd imagine 
everyone would sort of be open to that more than sprint races because I think the ultimate problem with sprint races is they're just too short. I know they're called sprints, but the exciting part of an F1 race is sort of like how it twists and turns, like how, who's going to have the better pit strategy, who's going to have the better stint kind of thing. But when you're pr- 100%, much, 100%. Yeah, when you're pretty much all on the same tire, there's no pit stops, like that's it. Like you could have the opening lap, you could have one lap and it'd be that's the end of the race kind of thing. Like I think you need to make it longer so then you get the pits involved, you get a strategy involved, like who's going to do better there. Like so, yeah, if that's like an option to sort of get a second Grand Prix in, like so it's longer so teams can maybe try one strategy on the Saturday and if it doesn't work, like go for a different one on Sunday or like if you have a really good Saturday like can you do it again on Sunday like I think that's definitely more exciting like that's definitely a better way to do it like like I said just the length of the sprint is what's what's wrong with it like it's not interesting enough for that amount of time like you need to get better you need to get to the good parts in F1 race and sort of other than the start like the sprint race doesn't tick a lot of boxes really does it I've tried to I've tried to be open to the concept of the sprint weekend. And I think initially in 21, when they introduced it, it was something I was super excited about. And in 21, it kind of worked because the championship was so close. So there was more relevance. They, they, the sprint races just mattered. And in the back of my head, I keep thinking, well, you're super negative about the sprint race this year because they just don't matter. They they have no they have no ramification in the championships themselves because those are so clearly decided. But I got really excited about the idea of a double Grand Prix that, hey, if we want to make that second race matter just make it a grand prix because you're halfway there with the sprint already and to your point all of a sudden all of those things that that sprint race is lacking the strategy the tire changes suddenly all of that is is injected into that race my friend i want to kind of flip to another story that you wrote recently that i thought was super interesting and to kind of recap this to everyone daniel ricardo of course he's back in the red bull family now he's spent a ton of time in the red bull sim at milton Keynes. he's been very successful in the few races that he's had with alpha tauri as a reminder prior to departing the milton Keynes based red bull team for renault he spent five years with the red bull team the senior red bull team having won seven races including two in his final year in 2018 you you wrote a really interesting article that suggested that there was probably more going on with respect to the contract negotiations in 2018 leading into 2019 than maybe we knew. And I think Daniel Ricardo's exit to Renault probably came as a bit of a shock to Christian Horner and Helmut Marco and everybody else at that team. But it sounds like they were willing to cut a pretty big check to keep him. Do you, do you want to expand a little bit on this article you wrote back on November 8th? Yeah, definitely. Like, So if we, if we flash back, like, Ricardo, he sort of starts with Vettel, then when Vettel leaves, Ricardo becomes the main man. He has a few teammates, and then suddenly Max Verstappen appears in 2016, obviously wins his first race, does really well. It sort of becomes the poster boy and like golden boy of Red Bull, especially Helmut Marko. Like Helmut Marko has always been the big, I don't know what the word is, like the one who's pushing him the most, who's supporting the most. Like That's not to say that Christian Horner doesn't believe in him, but Helmut Marko has still been really driving this this push on that front. And I think if you're Ricardo, like, that was that used to be you, didn't it? It used to be the young hotshot. Used to be the one who everyone thinks was going to win a world title. So he sort of got into this 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 point. I think it was around 2018. Sort of, he 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 was sort of umiinari. He's like you could see which way it was going. I think there was a lot of moments during that season where him and Max may have crashed, and he thought, okay, that was definitely Max's fault. And sort of Red Bull did disagreed or whatever. Sort of led with Max and supported Max. And I think Ricardo was just getting a little bit annoyed. And I think. It, so it came out because Christian Horner was speaking on a podcast. He did a big like sort of tell all of that year of his side of the story. And 
judging from Horner's words, it sort of seemed like Ricardo was unsure of what he wanted. Like he was, I mean, if he was really sure that he didn't want to set Red Bull, he would have said straight away, he said, I want to go, I want to do this kind of thing. But he, he, to begin with, he agreed to a new deal. Like I think they gave Max a new deal. So they put him on $10 million, which is huge for a young guy. And then I think Ricardo sort of said, okay, well, why am I not getting that kind of thing? And eventually he was offered that and he seemingly accepted it. And like, so the money side of it was fine. It was just, I think he started to feel like he wasn't the main player. And I think for a driver like him, he wants to be the main guy. And I think when Renault came in, they offered him that, that to him. They offered him huge money, but they offered him the fact that he could be the main guy. He could help this historic team sort of get back to the top. And I think that's probably what excited him more. Like he didn't want to be in the Red Bull group where, he's playing second fiddle, second fiddle to Max Verstappen. Like, and it's funny now because obviously fast forward how many years and like that's what he's going to be doing. Like, that's what he hopes to be doing next year like or the year after. So yeah, it's an interesting one. I think Christian Orlitz tells it quite interesting. Like they, they're having a test at, um, I think it was Hungary and um, Ricardo said yeah, he's going to sign the deal and sort of the day he's ticked on. He gets on a plane to LA and Horner's sort of wondering what's going on here then. Like, and when he gets um, to LA, he rings Horner and says, I've changed my mind. I want to go sign for Renault. And I think Horner's reaction was like, what? Renault? Like, I can understand if it was Ferrari or Mercedes, but like, <laughs> why are you leaving Renault? Like, and if you go back to the context of it, like Red Bull had so many issues with the Red, Renault engine. Like Red Bull like openly hated Renault because of what they were doing for their engine. So like Horner just couldn't believe it. Like he said, we've offered you all this money like, and you're choosing to go off to this bizarre team. And like Horner says that eventually Ricardo rang him. I think it was during the COVID season, so 2020, and sort of, apologized and said you were right and I think maybe that's why Horner a few years down the line sort of let him come back into the Red Bull fold I mean he never really left on bad terms I think it was more confusion from Red Bull they were sort of like I don't understand why you're doing this kind of thing but yeah it's all happy now but I would wonder if you went back to Ricardo now and said this is what's going to happen like would you stay I'm I'm sure he'd say yes like at least if he's playing second fiddle to Max Stappen he's in a car that can challenge for a championship a few years down the line that's about to get a new deal of Honda, which obviously changes their momentum. And it's just a car he knows how to drive. It's a car he's familiar with. And he's obviously got a team principal that likes him. So, yeah, it was a big decision for Ricardo, And obviously it led to Red, to Renault and it's led to McLaren as well. So, yeah, it was just an interesting, like, sort of behind the scenes pull of the curtain from Horner sort of saying, like, he he was surprised everyone else about this this Renault contract. It's funny, you mentioned something I'd never thought about before, which was not only does he exit Red Bull to go to Renault, but Renault was the engine supplier to Red Bull at that time. And of course, there was a ton of friction in that relationship, so much so that I think Red Bull took the Renault branding off of that power unit after the 2015 season so they were rocking a Renault power unit but they didn't even want to give Renault credit for it so they had kind of like a branding agreement in place but that's really interesting and I think that's going to be one of those kind of forever kind of conversations in F1 that you know you're sitting down at the pub and you're having a pint with a friend it's like what if what if Ricardo stayed with Red Bull and of course I don't think the Red Bull stands are probably going to ask that question because they've enjoyed enormous success and they've had, you know what, multiple constructors championships and three drivers titles now, and they're going to win a fourth driver's title next year. But I think it'll always be interesting to think that what could have been and, and where would F1 have been now? So I think that's, I think that's super, super interesting, but it is interesting as well because it wasn't previously understood that the deal was kind of generally agreed to like from a framework perspective and that they were, they'd come together on the money, but very, very interesting. My friend, I want to pivot again 
So we're going to hop all over the place now, and we're going to hop over to Andretti and, and Andretti Global Motorsports and GM. So as we all know, and I don't need to relitigate this, Andretti wants in. They want on the grid, and there was a lot of pushback from F1 and the teams about bringing value. So they said, you know what? Let's fly to Detroit. Let's sign up General Motors, and General Motors is on board. You know what? We're going to leverage the Cadillac brand, and we're going to provide technical expertise to the team. And there's been some allusions to the fact that, hey, some point long term we'll also build the power unit and we know that the the initial plan was that Andretti was going to source Renault power units speaking of Renault now what we learned a couple of weeks ago is that the F1 teams and Liberty keep pushing back on the Andretti bid, even though F the FIA have officially signed off on it. But it sounds as though there were overtures from F1, whether it was teams, whether it was Liberty, there were overtures that went around Andretti and directly to GM about, hey, we'd really love if you would participate in the sport, but how about you participate with an existing team as opposed to this startup in Andretti? Now, there's an interesting quote that came out this week from the Associated Press, and GM says, and this is GM's president, Mark Ross, he says, GM is committed to partnering with Andretti to race in F1. The collaboration between Andretti Cadillac brings together two unique entities built for racing, both with long pedigrees of success in motorsport globally. So it sounds as though GM's very much putting a nail in the coffin of the idea of partnering with an existing team. Uh, and it sounds like, hey, we are committed 100% to the Andretti bid. My friend, what are you hearing from the world of F1 in the paddock with respect to the FIA effectively having given their blessing to the Andretti bid? Clearly, Liberty is not happy about this. Clearly, the teams are not happy about this. Are we heading for litigation? Or is Liberty going to drag this out as long as possible? Could there potentially be negotiations between Liberty and Andretti about a, a, kind of an expanded, increased expansion fee? Where do you think this is heading? Because since the FIA had given their blessing, it's been very quiet. Yeah, you're right. Like, I think I can't tell you what's going on because I think no one knows. Like, there's been absolute radio silence coming out of FOM. Like, no one knows where this bid stands. Like, we always assumed that the FIA was the more easier part of this task. Like, the fact that they passed the expression of interest process wasn't a huge surprise. Like, FIA have always been more welcoming to new teams. And like, but from the other side, like, there's just been a complete like lack of communication. Really, like, we all get the idea that they don't want to allow another one in, and that's mainly because they don't want to upset their five, their ten current teams. Like. It all comes down to money, doesn't it? I'm sure we've been over this a thousand times that the current F1 team don't want to lose an extra part of their profit. And they see Andretti coming in. They don't think Andretti will bring enough value, or maybe they do, but they don't want him to come in anyway. Like, yeah, it's just it's just a big mess. And I think it's all so up in the air at the moment. Like, there's been... The problem with this like, sort of new process is, like, we don't have any, like, history of it. We don't have, like, any precedent of what's going to happen next. Like, in the past, if a team wanted to join F1, it was pretty easy because teams are coming and going all the time and I think while it's been a really good thing that F1 in particular has made it so teams aren't going bust very often like these teams have been in for a while now they're all financially secure like it now means we have this like limbo period of like there's no set deadline when Liberty have to apply have to reply to Andretti and kind of thing and I think that sort of like backhandedness of F1 to go after the GM is just sort of like it struck me as like really like pathetic and petty like Andretti, I totally agree. Andretti, I feel really like a lot of sympathy for Andretti because 
they've wanted to get on the grid for a few years. It's obviously not because they want to make a quick buck. Like, they've got a huge racing history in a lot of different series. And I think they've done everything that's been after them. So like they came in like, and they said, okay, we need you to bring value. It's like, look, we're going to be in, we're going to be in the U S we're going to race completely at the U S you know, it's a whole new audience, like really invested in us. Okay. Okay. But that's still not enough value. Like you needed the original engine manufacturer. Like, okay. We've got general Motors, who are like the sixth biggest car company in the world. Like we've done that now. And it's like, okay, now you've got to pass this FIA expression of interest process. Like, okay, we've done that. We're the only people, only team that managed to do that. And still they're not in like, I'd be tearing my hair out. Like Michael Andretti's got, so, he must be so stubborn and so like determined to get this done. Because anyone else would be like, "Well, forget this. They don't want me. I'm leaving." Kind of thing. So yeah, like I honestly don't know what's going to happen next. I think in my mind, it's still like eighty percent Liberty say no, and like for whatever reason, because in reality, they don't have to give a reason. Like it's not a legal thing. They can just say, "No, we don't want you. We don't accept you." Kind of thing. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of discussions about that anti-dilution fund. Like I think everyone. Every everyone who's currently in the paddock says it should be raised, and I think that's a fair point because obviously it was made a few years ago. F one's boomed since then; like teams are worth more now, and like I think maybe once that gets sorted, then maybe that's a better chance. But yeah, to be honest, I wish to give you more information, but I think other than the people who work for Liberty and inside F one, like they're the only ones that sort of know what's going on because the rest of us. We're just guessing, really. Like, we've had nothing from them. It's funny, and our listeners know that I very much pivoted on this topic, that when Andretti burst into the paddock in Miami in 2022 with that piece of paper, and he's like, team principals, I need you to sign here and commit to my bid to join F1. I'm like, what the? Like, who are you to just burst into the grid and demand a spot on on, on, the, on, on the championship calendar? And, and, and it's funny because since then, I feel like the things he's done in terms of building the infrastructure – seem so quantifiable and so substantial that it just seems like this is a guy who could be sustainably and consistently excellent in the world of F1, that all of the things he's done have made some of the existing teams look pretty crappy in, in, in kind of in comparison. And I get really frustrated when I see somebody like Gunther Steiner and you know, it kind of makes sense. Look, Look, if I'm Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, and I've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure and facilities and expertise and personnel and and R&D that, you know, I'm going to be resistant to somebody joining the grid because one, they, they could potentially extract value and not give value back. And two, I'm going to have to give up potentially prize money in the championship because they're going to come in and be able to borrow um, a lot of our concepts. They're going to be able to sign away our people. Like, I kind of get it. But where I get super frustrated is Gunther Steiner being so vocally, vocally opposed to this. I'm just like, Gunther Steiner, who the hell are you to say this team shouldn't be on the grid and shouldn't add value? You don't spend to the cap. You add zero value to the championship. You've never been competitive. You've brought more shame to the championship when you think about their partnerships with the Russian oligarch and with Richard. Like, you've been an embarrassment to the championship. Like, you shouldn't be on the grid. Like, who are you? So I get a little bit frustrated because I just feel that if if we are in a world where we're open to the idea of adding a team, well, Andretti has a, a mo- kind of a motorsports pedigree at the highest single-seater level outside of Formula One, and they brought an OEM, 
and they're well supported and funded financially that it just seems so logical. And the fact that some teams just keep pushing back is really problematic. So I agree. I think there's probably an 80% chance the FOM are going to say no. Um, and they'll probably bury it in a late news release on a Friday in the middle of the winter. But I don't think they're in a hurry. But I think it's going to cause some more friction because clearly, clearly there's been friction between the FIA and and FOM Liberty that Mohammed bin Salam, the current president of the FIA, is really trying to reinforce the fact that they are, and I, this is this is Mohammed bin Salam's point, that they are the landlords of the championship, and the championship, quote unquote, is is theirs. That they're really trying to assert their position here, and even if the FOM says no, I think it's going to create a firestorm of friction between the two of them. If if the FOM says no, what do you think Andretti's reaction? What do you think the FOM reaction would be at that point? Do you think it would end up in the courts potentially? Yeah, I think that's most likely to be honest. Um, I think, like you mentioned, like it's also another part of the story is like you said, FIA versus FOM. Like we know pretty much since these two parties, parties have existed, like they've been at each other's throats a lot of the time. Like there's a lot of power struggle. Like, it's sort of a weird sport in that situation, in that sense that we've got these two entities that sort of control it, really. I think if you think of other sports, like obviously the NFL, like it's the NFL who do it. Like there's nothing sort of against that. And like even in English football, like yes, you've got the FA, but FIFA sort of the heads of that kind of thing. This is the only sport really where you've got like two people who both think they're on top. And like they are both on top, but in different areas. And I think that crossover, what area, who controls where is being blurred a lot and i think the fia in particular is sort of trying to wrestle back a lot more power so in their mind like i think they would see andretti get on the grid as like a big win for them because obviously they back them like they've sort of been the ones to open the door somewhat to them like let them in and it it doesn't really harm the fia at all like fia aren't going to lose any money like that's all fine like it's definitely on the fom business side of kind of thing and I think it goes back even further than like, because I remember it was sort of this time last year, maybe where it was rumored that Saudi Arabia made a bid for a FOM. And then suddenly um, the FIA are saying that that's not what it's worth. And like, that's sort of where the like bitterness or anger sort of happened. And then Andretti's just added to it kind of thing. So that's one part of it. And then, like you said, like if they do say no, like I think Andretti will say they've got a legal case. Like they've passed the rules, like unless... F1 and FOM and Liberty give such a waterproof reason like this is why we're not letting you in like these are the hard reasons the data this is the numbers we've got this is why we're not letting you in I think unless they do that like Andretti can argue well you've caused us a loss of money like we're not getting it in or like yeah there's a lot of reasons they could appeal it like I don't know who you appeal that to like whether you go to I mean there's something called the court of arbitration for sport like that's been used a lot to settle other disagreements in other sports and whether you go to that or whether you go fully legal and go to a court case or something like that. So yeah, it stands to get very messy. Like it's going to get, it's not going to be a nice ending. Like if they do say no, it's really going to depend on how, what steps Andretti want to take next. Like, do they want to take F1 on? Like, do they want to do that? Or do they just admit defeat and sort of go and focus on another series that they're already competing in? In the event that this went to court, I, I strongly think that Haas would function as a liability for the FOM because I think that I think that Andretti could very clearly draw a parallel that you have an existing team on the grid in Haas that delivers this amount of incremental value to the championship. We know that from a quantifiable perspective, we would provide 
significantly more value than an existing team. Like, how can you say no to us? But it'll be fascinating to see it play out. And you're right that I completely forgot about that comment last year. And that was a comment from Mohammed bin Salem. Of course, FOM had to have their lawyers write up basically a cease and desist letter to stop talking. But he had basically said outright that he thought that F1 was overvalued. And for the president of the FIA to say that could have massive ramifications to the valuation of the business. That if one of the chief stakeholders is suggesting it's overvalued, which is crazy. So obviously the relationship isn't good. And I think it's only going to get worse if if the FOM says, hey, yeah, no, we don't want another team at this point. My friend, I'm going to pivot again to another story because I want to be super respectful of your time. It's Saturday night uh, in the UK right now. But you, you wrote an interesting article the other day entitled, Fernando Alonso criticizes rumor spreaders following retirement reports. Now, there's been a lot of interesting rumors about Fernando Alonso recently. One, that he might have joined another team next year, despite the fact that it looks like his contract is pretty secure with Aston Martin. And there were also rumors that seemed to start bubbling up and percolating on social media and on the internet over the last couple of weeks about the fact that he, despite having an immensely successful year with Aston Martin, might be looking to retire. And you have a great quote here that says, uh, I respect those of you who have been here for years or professionals do your job. These rumors are coming from people who are not in this room, who are just doing this for fun, but there are consequences. Maybe talk a little bit about where these comments came from and maybe talk about the fact that rumors from presumably uncredentialed media are now able to create so many shockwaves within the paddock. Yeah, well, touching that second part, firstly, like it's the social media age, isn't it? Like anyone can have a Twitter account. Anyone can start saying stuff. Anyone can say, oh, I've heard from Alonzo's best mates, mum's dad, whatever kind of thing. Like there's a lot of tenuous links. And I think <laughs> in the previous days, like decades gone by, like it was journalists like writing in the newspaper or doing whatever, like they're putting their name to it. They're putting their reputation to it. They're putting their job on the line kind of thing. Whereas now, like anyone can have an opinion, like anyone will start saying something. And I think this whole episode, and I think I'm trying to remember what Grand Prix it was. It sort of all blended. Well, I think it was a Mexican Grand Prix, but afterwards, like there's a Spanish journalist called Abba Fabrega, like, he tweeted that he'd heard a rumor in the paddock and like he didn't couldn't believe what it was like this massive thing but he refused to say what it is and like just the context like there's a lot of things like journalists here but like it's rare like you'd, you'd sort of talk about them like you, know, you get off off the record comments and they're sort of mainly for you like mainly for your own benefit so if you happen to report in the future if it becomes true or whatever like you have a good understanding and you know what's true and what's not true Whereas when he tweets something like that, like I personally, I don't really know what he was trying to get out of it. Like whether he was just so in shock that he, that's how he let it out, but it led to this like huge frenzy of like people like theorizing all online of like what is he talking about, what kind of thing. And I think the fact that he's Spanish sort of led it to be okay. It's either about Alonso, about Signs, and I think Signs is fairly like well set for our. I think obviously a new deal might be coming soon, but like Alonso like was the one more. A lot of people were guessing it's about him, and I think. It just spiraled from there. It snowballed. It snowballed. And suddenly, in the next few days, like Alonso is moving to Red Bull. Alonso is moving to wherever. I kind of think like that's just how quickly, like in the social media age, it can go from one innocent, like seemingly innocent tweet, if a little bit misguided, to suddenly a huge rumor like developing. And I think Alonso was just annoyed at that. And I think that's fair enough. Like imagine if you were just just finished work on a Sunday, and then a rumor comes out about you Sunday evening. And by the time the ne- you next speak to like in front of the cameras and stuff like that, and like 
it's just snowball out of control. Like you didn't do anything, you didn't say anything, you didn't speak to anyone. Like it's it's probably quite annoying for him. And having been in the sport so long, he probably knows who he can trust with these secret things, kind of thing. So yeah, I think Alonso's point was like, stop making rumors up about me. Like I'm absolutely fine. Like I'm having a great time at Aston Martin. I've got another contract for another year. Like I'm not moving anywhere. Like don't like spread a load of stuff about me. So yeah, I think that was just sort of him saying like, okay, next person to do that, like you're in trouble, kind of thing. As to what consequence you can mean, like, basically, like, in a way, you could sort of say he's not going to speak to that media ever again, like, he's not going to speak to the outlet ever again, or he's, Aston Martin won't be very nice to him kind of thing. So, like, there are there are ways to do it, and, like, I'd use the example of Sir Alex Ferguson in football, like, he was famous for banning journalists out of his press room that he didn't like, so that's sort of the extreme version of it, but, like, yeah, here's a, Alonso's point was just basically, like, don't believe everything you read online, because that's, most of the time, people are just completely making up, like, the people who know about Alonso's future will be a very small circle and I can guarantee the people in that small circle aren't going to start saying rumors in the paddock about him. My friend, I, I have to say this and I'm not credentialed media. We we produce a very popular podcast and we do 100 plus episodes a year. I still don't consider myself part of the media where we're more content creators, but you very much are a part of the established professional F1 media and from my perspective, I get frustrated sometimes where I will see a unsubstantiated BS tweet um, or a Reddit post or a YouTube video that goes viral with zero substance and it gets hundreds of thousands or sometimes millions of impressions. Meanwhile, I will see real world actual journalism with sources and quotes that just collect cobwebs that I get I get frustrated and I, I don't have a solution to this but you can see why based on the infrastructure of social media and reddit and things like that you can see sometimes why this this kind of juicy but unsubstantiated stuff catches fire but really it comes at the expense of meaningful journalism and I think that's why it was interesting that Fernando Alonso with those quotes was addressing the established media that were sitting in front of them. Like, Hey, it's no one in this room, but you're right that somebody that has no connection to the world of F1 can create a story that could be completely lies or unfabricated or unsubstantiated. And then it almost becomes truth because it becomes part of the narrative around F1. And all of a sudden you have somebody like Fernando Alonso who now needs to address it because even though it's BS, because it becomes so big, people within the F1 press kind of gallery, they actually have to start asking questions about it. So it becomes a part of the narrative and the backdrop of F1. It's it's crazy. Do you get frustrated sometimes as somebody that's actually part of the F1 media contingent, seeing this kind of stuff catch fire sometimes? Just like, come on, there's there's no substance to this. Yeah, definitely. I think like as a bit of advice to anyone who's sort of listening, like always question where somebody's come from. Like, if you see a random room on Twitter, try try and find out who started that. And if it is some guy on Twitter, like you can pretty much guarantee it's wrong. If it's come from a journalist or like someone you know, like I think for all of us will have a lot of journalists that we know to be like fairly trustworthy to be like, and we sort of follow what they say. If a rumor appears, like wait for it to be confirmed by someone else, like or like confirmed by a bigger outlet or like a more respected journalist, and like only then can you sort of start taking it seriously. Like, I think these rumours spread because people want them to be true. Like, I think the idea of Alonso and a Red Bull is something that a lot of people would want to see. But if you question the truth behind it, like there's so many reasons why it wouldn't happen. Like, A, he's got a contract vest in mind. B, he's quite happy with it. C, why would Red Bull put Alonso in in their car and potentially annoy Max Verstappen? Like, that makes zero sense. They wouldn't do that. 
Red Bull have always been a team that sort of favour the one good driver and the one second driver. Like having Alonso in there is just a recipe for disaster. Like there's just a lot of obvious reasons why that couldn't be true. So yeah, let's just a bit of advice, sort of like question everything. Like if you see a rumor online, like question how real that's possibly going to be and also question who's saying it like if it's someone respectable and reputable like okay it's probably true but if it's someone like a random twitter account who's got like a picture of an egg or something <laughs> or a picture of a driver as their icon probably not going to be true you know it's it's funny that you mentioned the the egg and i think a lot of our younger viewers viewers listeners might not be familiar with that but back in the olden days when you created your twitter account before you posted an avatar you get this kind of generic egg it would typically be a troll or something like that but one of the things that i think f1 not f1 that twitter has really lost is credibility because back when you had to earn your check mark you were typically more you would typically be more trusting of the things that that person would say or the things that they would post. But now that anyone can buy a check mark, it's just a total free for all. And it's one of the reasons why, unfortunately, we've stepped back from Twitter because it can be so hard to disseminate between good news and bad news. And unfortunately, the algorithm tends to push the juicier stuff because it's it's more interesting, even though it's unsubstantiated. My friend, pivoting back to the FIA a little bit here, and maybe I should have ordered these stories a little bit better, but Jonathan Noble over at motorsport.com is reporting that Dieter Rankin, of course, the famous German F1 uh, writer, who has been working as an advisor, and I didn't know this, who has been working as an advisor to FIA President Mohammed Ben Salam for several months, will, with immediate effect, take up the role of F1 commissioner. Now, apparently, this is something that the FIA and previous presidents, including Jean Todd, have aspired to have for some time, but for financial reasons and things like that, didn't have the bandwidth or the capability to hire somebody with the credentials necessary to lead this role. Is this... Maybe I should ask this. One, what is this role? What is it supposed to do? And does it potentially further inflame the relationship with the FOM? Because it would seem that this role is less regulatory in nature in terms of establishing the regulations for power units and suspensions and aerodynamics. But presumably it's designed, and and I'm hoping you can keep me honest here, Presumably, it's designed to move the sport forward from a commercial and entertainment perspective. And is that not the role of the FOM? And should the FOM potentially have had a hand in helping design this role and who's going to participate in this? So maybe talk a little bit about what this role is supposed to be and whether it's going to further inflame the friction between the FIA and the FOM. That's a fair point. And honestly, I don't know what this role is going to involve. Like It was very vague. Like... Like you said, like if you if you said, okay, we're having an F one commissioner, like what side should he work for? Is it gonna be FIA or is it gonna be FOM? And like I think naturally you'd say FOM and like if we compare it to other sports, so think about the NFL and their commissioner, like I'd sort of say his role is very similar to Stefano Demacali's role, or like as an F one president. That's probably just as Exactly Yeah. Exactly. So like he fulf- already fulfills that role, he's just got a different title, he's just called president rather than commissioner, like I don't really understand, like, what, like you said, like, what are the FIA going to be doing, like, about that? Like, I think it was already sort of a weird role, like, as an advisor to um, uh, Mohammed bin Salim. Like, what was, what did that involve? Like, what, what, what process was there? Like, how come after such a short period is this former journalist now being like promoted to a commissioner of F1? And like, honestly, I don't know what his job remit's going to be. Like, I don't know what kind of powers he's going to have because, like you said, like. I think all the stuff we sort of typically associate with being a commissioner is sort of 
already covered like we've f1's existed for how many years and like we haven't needed a commissioner up till now like i don't really see the point like what is he doing that's not either part of the fia president's job or part of the f1's president's job like surely it's already covered so yeah like i wish i'd give you more answers again like i feel like i'm saying this to a lot of questions but like we just don't know really like i sort of like okay that came out of the blue kind of thing i didn't realize that fi fi were looking for that did they interview other candidates? Maybe someone from like a racing background would have been a better idea than a journalist kind of thing. Like <laughs> it's probably quite hard. Like I, yes. I'd fair enough. He's been in the pallet for like decades kind of thing, but he's not a driver. He's not like a team principal. He hasn't been on that sporting side kind of thing. So I think there was probably better candidates out there, but like we don't really know how this process went and the sort of what happened really. So yeah, it's another weird thing that's come out of the FIA. It's not the first weird thing that's come out of the FIA this year. It probably won't be the last. I know it's like November, but we've got time. <laughs> they will do something more weird between now and the end of the year, I can guarantee it. So like, yeah, I mean, it's just a bizarre move, really. It's so fascinating, right, that the FIA hires this journalist. And it's not just any journalist. That I think most people listening to the show know who um, uh, this individual is. But it's it's interesting that in the past, they were never able to according to Jean Todd, hire anyone for this role because one, they didn't need to because Bernie had such a strong handle on the kind of commercial and and kind of sporting aspects of F1 in terms of driving it forward. So they didn't have a need. But Jean Todd also said we could never actually afford somebody with the qualifications necessary. But now Mohammed bin Salam hires somebody who's a journalist without a racing background and without a racing pedigree. And we don't know what the role is for. Does it overlap with the current responsibilities of, like you said, Stefano Domenicali? Is it purely regulatory? And if it is, why do you need this role? Because you're already very strong there. And then the only thing that I've seen is that uh, Mohammed Ben Salem expects this role to help negotiate the Concord Agreement, but a former journalist is not the person that you would want to negotiate possibly the most important Concord Agreement in the history of the sport. It's all just so it's all just so baffling, and I don't mean to come on and just hate on the FIA because the FIA is far from perfect, and the FOM is far from perfect. That we could just sit back and observe and share our thoughts, but super super fascinating that now they've got this role that you, my friend, would be equally qualified for based. Based on, based on the established criteria. So yeah, super, super interesting. All right, my friend, we've been here for an hour. I've got a couple of quick mailbag questions for you before we wrap this one up. And the first one comes from listener Jennifer Longley from Oklahoma. And she says, Sam, what reason or reasons do we have to be optimistic for 24 or 25, presumably in light of the 2022 and 2023 championships? Good question. I'm going to point to one particular team as a reason to be optimistic. And it's not going to be Aston Martin. Yes, they made a huge jump up over the winter. But look at McLaren. Like, what a season they've had. Like, the start of this year, it looked like awful within the team. Like, they looked like they were going to have to be miles away. And, like, now, like, they've got by far the second quickest car. Like, they can occasionally challenge Red Bull like hasn't quite worked out yet but like I think the fact they've made such progress is really positive and I think being in year two like this would be the year going into year three of the regulations like hopefully by now teams will start to figure out like Red Bull no doubt like they hit the ball running like they hit the ground running sorry and they obviously nailed it straight away like their first design was pretty much the perfect design Red like other teams have now had a few more years to get built up and like Looking at McLaren, like they've got all these great staff coming in. So they've got someone from Red Bull coming in. They've got someone from Ferrari coming in. Like, yes, they're going to start the start of next year. So they're not going to have much influence on 
next year's car but like that's still great people in that team and like they've got two great drivers and like they're really a team like such great momentum and like looking down the grid there's probably a lot of reasons for them to be optimistic i mean mercedes like that's huge challenge but they've sort of said okay we gave up about summertime with this car like we're sort of definitely focused on our next year's car so yes i know it's hard to be positive i know that red bull are probably going to be the best car again next year like it's looking like that way but i think the fact that some teams have got a bit closer this year hopefully that's not just a false dawn and hopefully like they move on like we saw this during mercedes years when red bull and ferrari sort of getting a little bit close and then finally red bull did it like maybe this is a time next year and like i know it's gonna be hard to get excited for but if, it, if it's another year of the staff and dominating like just forget who's in p1 just enjoy the p2 down because that's been great this year like just ignore who wins like it's fine just enjoy the rest of the grid. The next question here comes from a listener in Los Angeles, Amal Muhammad, and she writes, every time it feels like Mercedes is taking a big step forward, Mexico, it feels like they make a huge step backwards, Brazil. What is happening with the Brackley team? And I, I included a story here where Toto basically just expresses his frustration with what happened there. Did they raise the car too much and they lose that downforce and have to compensate with a big draggy wing? We, we don't know. But why does it feel like every time they're starting to get to a good place and we get excited, something happens and there's a performance that kind of undoes all of that excitement. What is going on in Brackley and Bricksworth, my friend? So I think the pro main problem with Mercedes' car, and essentially because today I spent a lot of time, like, I basically ranked all of Mercedes' cars since they came back to F1. And like as soon as you get to 22 and 23, it just goes downhill. So like I think the main problem, like moving away from the zero pod side pod that just obviously didn't work, like ignoring all that, I think the main problem with this car is it's really hard to get into the window. Like drivers talk about the window a lot. And I'm just trying to think of capacity. Like if you ever played a video game where like you've got to like, there's an arrow moving up and down and you've got to get it in the green. So it goes like red, orange, green, orange, red. Like it's going up and down like that a lot. And you've got to try and nail it in the green. Like I think Mercedes like little block of green is so much smaller than everyone else's. Like they're really struggling to find the right setup. And what that means is like balancing the car, like, rear ring setup like how much downforce again like are we having too much drag and like the fact that we're having like a lot of sprint weekends re recently where we've only got one practice session and then cars going to part firme so teams can't touch a lot and if they do they're gonna have to start the pit lane like that's not been good for mercedes because they just don't have enough time to work out the car like we've seen so many other races this year where they've had a dreadful friday and they basically lock nick schumacher in his simulator all sat all friday evening like you're not coming out so we work out what's wrong with this car so he does it like over and over again. And then comes Saturday, their car's a lot better. But obviously during a sprint weekend, you just can't do that. Like you're locked from touching your car. So yeah, I think the main problem, like, like I said, it's just getting it in that right window, like getting the balance right. Like we've heard Mercedes call their cars divas in the past. And like they were saying that when they were winning races, like this is the ultimate diva. Like this is a car that does not want to be driven like well at all. Like it's really hard to find the right spot. But when they do find that right spot, like, it's really it is a good car but it's it's very circuit dependent like it's got its strengths and it's got its weaknesses i spoke earlier about tires being a particular problem for them like they just can't seem to fire them up very well and yet i think like i said i think they've almost well they pretty much have given up on this year like they keep saying they want to get p2 and like beat checo to p2 or whatever like but of a team like mercedes that won all those titles they're not gonna be interested in p2 like they want to win the championship next year and they've got like sort of like McLaren, they've got a lot of good people in the team, like obviously led to all the success. Like 
they're still there. Like they can still work this out. So yeah, I think as long as like they can sort of fix it and make it an easier car to work with, then maybe they can have better success and maybe they won't have such wild like fluctuations in form next year. The next question comes from a listener in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Mr. Jack Smith. And he asks, what the heck happened to Aston Martin this year? And how did they seemingly recover their performance? Was Brazil a fluke or are they back for real? So, yeah, that's sort of similar to Mercedes where like, just in the opposite direction, like Aston, for whatever reason, just didn't develop well. They started putting on developments like the upgrades to their car that thought they'd make it better. But in reality, it made it much worse. So the car at the start of the year, it was obviously really quick. No doubt it was the second quickest car behind Red Bull again. But as they developed it, for whatever reason, like, it just didn't work out. And like, there's a few reasons behind it. Like, we, we saw the similar with Mercedes. Like, sometimes the data they get in the in their factory just doesn't line up with what they're seeing on the track. And, like, this era of Formula 1, like, you get such limited on-track testing. And it's it's sort of the reason why, like, porpoising was such a big issue last year. It's just... Teams run all these simulations, but none of that just did that didn't appear like in the computer. Whereas Aston obviously had this plan, it just didn't work. And like they sort of I guess they sort of just didn't really trust themselves a little bit. They sort of lost faith in themselves. Like they were sort of second guessing everything they were doing. So they developed car the, the car down one route and they sort of realized that's completely the wrong way to go. So they sort of had to reverse develop it, like get it back to what it was. And I think as to why Brazil was a better race, like We've got to take into like context as well. Like Q three was obviously a weird Q three that a lot of drivers like it was pretty much dependent on who went out first, like who who got up the high of the grid. But also they've sort of taken the car back a little bit to how it was at the start of this year. And I think they're now just trying to they're also a team that are just sort of learning lessons for next year. Like they, they're not gonna lose their spot now. Like McLaren are gone and Alpine are too far behind. So they're in a perfect spot where they can just sort of learn for next year and they wanna I mean, if they can carry on a development plan that's at least half as good as the other teams, like it's going to be okay. But the fact that they went so far back just was a nightmare, really, for their, their development side. So, yeah, over the winter, they'll be doing lots of tests. Like, why did this happen? Like, sort of explaining it and, like, breaking it down. And then hopefully next year they'll have learned from our lessons. Because let's also forget, like, this is – I say it's a new team, but it's like a new top team, isn't it? Like, if we compare them to, like, Red Bull, Ferrari, um, and Mercedes, like – those lot have had years of playing at the top and like what it takes to develop a car. Whereas Aston Martin were like P7 last year. Now suddenly they're up near the top. So there's a lot of learning. There's just, they just need, I think they just need time to get it sorted. And like, hopefully next year they can have a better development plan they did than they did this year. The mood at Silverstone in the off season might be, might be a little bit sour only because of their mid-season form. But I think if you had said to anyone at Silverstone leading into the season that Fernando Alonso would score eight podiums, that I think they would have been ecstatic. And that's exactly what he's done. He's scored eight podiums. But because there was so much confusion and, and such poor performance really through kind of the second act of the season that maybe it kind of leaves a sour kind of taste in their mouths but that said you know what they they scored a p3 and a p5 in brazil and they have two grand prix left and they finished strong maybe the energy changes going into the off season and at the same time i'm sure they're doing a ton of work in parallel on their 2024 car but i also like that comment about them being now a top team a top team in terms of the willingness of Lawrence Stroll to spend. And now they've built up their infrastructure in a way that only a few of the top teams can contend with. My friend, the last question, and this one is definitely not from my wife. It is from my wife. Sarah Rockney from Vancouver, British Columbia says, Sam, why don't you just join the Scuderia F1 podcast full-time already? 
<laughs> so kind of putting it on the spot, you uh, don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that. Wow. The sentiment of our <laughs> community. Like say, you can invite me anytime. I'm happy to come on. Like, I'm absolutely happy to come on anytime. Day or night. My friend. <laughs> well, where... I have to say night for me. <laughs> of course. My friend, where can people follow you and where can they check out your work? Yeah, so on Twitter or X or what it's called, Sam Cooper underscore is where I am. And then, yeah, PanF1.com. So, like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on me in there. So I had an interview with Pato Ward that came out there on Saturday as we record. So, yeah, a few interviews. There's going to be a lot of stuff in the off-season that I'm sort of preparing now. Like, so, yeah, just because F1's over in a few weeks, like, don't think, don't think that I'm sort of just on the beach, as it were. Like, yeah, there's definitely going to be stuff coming out. So <laughs> check on there. Like, I'm sure there'll be something you, you'd like to read. To everybody listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what we do, make sure to give us a rating on Spotify and a rating and a review on Apple. We'll be back in a couple of days to get everyone ready for the Las Vegas Grand Prix. And as a final reminder, we'll be hosting our fundraiser at my place in Coquitlam, which is a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia. This weekend, if you cannot make it, but you would still like to contribute, we would love if you can make a $30 donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association. And if you're interested in doing so, reach out to me and I'll send you the link and make sure that you're able to do exactly that thanks again everybody talk to you again bye for now i feel like a locomotive sipping drinking arizona mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california can't wait to drop this on you yeah they gonna have fun with that smash like song them and my songs gonna break through like a running back